As officials in Utah, we're striving to bring coaches, wrestlers, fans, and officials together in building the community of wrestling to create a better atmosphere and to grow everyone involved. I'm your host, Mark Winterton, and this is Takedowns and Takeaways. It's the life lessons learned on the mat. My co-hosts today are Mike Clapier and Don Christensen. Our guest today is Bart Thompson. He was on the National Federation High School Rules Committee. I guess that that's will bring Bart in. How long were you on the Rules Committee? I spent four years on the Rules Committee. Um, first year was my last year coaching at Beaumont. Um, and then three more years is, you know, while I was at uh, the Activities Association. And then I uh, did an additional four years. Um, what was it? Four years after that, I guess, um, as the chairman of the uh, Wrestling Rules Committee. The, yeah, were so there, eight years total. Were there any specific rule changes that you wanted to see done going in? Or was there no agenda? I didn't have an agenda going in. Um, if anything, I wanted to help to maybe clarify, make things a little bit more clear. The problem was is that four-year period in between when I was on, some things got messed up a little bit, particularly with shoelaces, but not. Yes. Um, <laughs> Explain um, that process. How would how would your board judge an idea? Where would they come from? How would an idea become a rule? Because I know as an official, every year you have to look at the new rules, get those down. How did that process work? Yeah, and 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 to me, and this is a great topic, and I'm glad we're we're spending some time on it. And and I, I'm probably going to go on a little bit long on this, so bear <laughs> with me a little bit. But uh, and if you've got questions along the way, please ask them. But uh, I know as a coach, it, it seemed like, oh my word, where did that come from? You know how in the what are they thinking? You know, what is going yeah. on? Why is hair a, 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 why do we have a hair rule? Well, to, to put things in perspective, as chairman of the rules committee, my first year, we spent four hours, I'm not kidding you, four hours talking about uniforms for girls. Okay. But, but anyway, and, and, and as I go through the process, it'll make sense why I hope. Who could, who could submit a, a rule okay. idea? Anybody in the United States of America or anywhere in the world actually can submit a rule proposal change, rule change proposal. Um, those go through your local state high school association. So in Utah, it would be the UHSAA office. Okay. Um, that's where they go first. That's where they get submitted. Now, those are going to be rejected out of hand if they're not written as a legitimate rule proposal, which would mean you need to have the portion of the rules book that you propose to change with strike out through what you want to delete and the wording underlined of what you want to add to make it say what you want to make the rules change. Because to say, hey, we just want to, you know, let's take, for example, something that's been debated for a long time, hasn't gotten very far, quite honestly, but um, we want to create a step-out rule. If a wrestler touches the boundary line, their opponent gets a point. 
if you're in the neutral position. Okay. I, I've heard that as long as I coached. Okay. We need a step out rule. That'll encourage people to wrestle in the middle. It'll take care of all problems. It took care of it in freestyle. Yeah, we hear it all the time. Okay. So just as an example, let's take that. I'm not saying that I favor it or oppose it or anything else. Let's just use that as an example because it's one that's been talked about. 99.9% of the rules change proposals we would get to establish a step out rule would say exactly that. There needs to be a step out rule, period. That's what would get submitted. Well, you can't put that in the rules book. <laughs> um, and so if you're going to make that a, a rule change proposal, you need to actually get into the out-of-bounds rules. Make sure you delete all the stuff that's in there now about you know, out-of-bounds or whatever else. Add the language that you want that actually describes how that would be administered okay, and submit that to the State High School Activities Association. Now, the State High School Activities Association has the option to either submit that to the National Rules Committee or not. So that's the first hurdle it's got to overcome is the State High School Activities Association. Some State High School Activities Association have wrestling um, advisory committees, made up coaches, officials, that type of thing that help to determine what goes on. Others run them through their administrator within the association. Um, there are different ways that, that states deal with that. But ultimately, the uh, executive director of the State Activities Association has to approve that and send it on to the um, National Federation in order for it to even be considered. Okay. Once that goes to the, the National Federation, uh, the Federation is going to take a look at it to make sure that it falls within the scope of what they deal with. Um, most of the time, they're not going to dismiss it out of hand if it doesn't. But if it really violates what they're trying to do, for instance, if you were proposing a rule um, that a match would not be stopped if a wrestler appeared to be unconscious, okay, that absolutely violates everything that the National Federation stands for in protecting and promoting safety in the sport. That one probably wouldn't even make it past the initial review. Is that one you've seen? Um, I haven't because they never made it past. <laughs> What's the craziest so, rule you've seen? Well, hang on, on, on process. Yeah, um, let's finish process here. And so so if, I, if I propose a rule... Uh -huh. When does it have to be submitted by, and then when does the committee meet? Okay. Um, the deadline for submission to the National Federation is usually right about state tournament time, which always made it difficult for me because I was always busy helping with state tournament and, you know, running that, doing the bracketing and all that kind of stuff for it, as well as coaching. And once the state tournament was over and I could take a breath and say, okay, now that rule, well, the deadline is passed. Yeah. <laughs> like pretty much always. But uh, it opens up for the following year, usually about June, and goes through like the end of February uh, to be submitted to the National Federation. Once the National Federation gets them, if it that's the initial, and almost all of them do, I, it, it's a rare time when we had a report from our um, staff member at the National Federation that there had been rules proposals that had been weeded out. Because most of those actually get weeded out at the state level. They, they don't get proposed you know, from the state association, because it's obviously, you know, they shouldn't happen. But um, So once that happens, 
then those rules become rules proposals that the committee will entertain. Those proposals then go out to all of the rules committee members. There's one rules committee member from each of the uh, sections in the United States, uh, the geographic sections that make up the National Federation. Uh, Utah, for example, is in a section with Arizona, California, Nevada, and Hawaii. That makes up that section. So all the rules proposals from those areas, you know, well, actually all the rules proposals go to the representative from that section, along with the representatives from all the other sections. They then poll wrestling representatives in the state high school associations um, in all of the states in their section to get an idea of how they feel about those particular proposals. In addition, the state or the National Federation sends out a survey on uh, um, possible rule changes. Um, the rules committee at the end of their meeting puts together a, a list of potential issues for the next year's meeting that they want surveyed. And then if there are things that come up in the meantime, those are also added to that survey. That survey goes out nationwide. It goes out to officials, organizations. Um, it goes out to coaches, organizations. It goes out to all of the state associations and they get feedback on that. Um, so the results of that survey come back in along with the results or the, the feedback that the individual representative gets from the states that they represent on the actual rules proposal changes, actual rules change proposals, I should say. Um, that all comes back in. Then the rules committee meeting takes place. In that rules committee meeting, um, we review everything. I mean, we get reports from uh, USA Wrestling, we have reports from the NCAA. Uh, we get reports from those who are supporting girls wrestling. Um, we get support or we get uh, reports from uh, health and safety. Um, the National Federation conducts a nationwide injury survey. Um, and to give you an example, not this last time that the weight classes changed, which are just about to take place, but the time before, um, the reason we ended up with an extra weight up in the top part is because the national uh, injury survey that came back in showed that the 189 uh, pound weight class had almost twice as many injuries as any of the other weight classes. And in fact, it had almost as many injuries as the other weight classes combined. And when we looked at that, you went from 171 to 189. It was one of the biggest percentage differences. So a, a kid who weighed 175 couldn't lose that last four pounds because they'd be below body fat percentage or whatever reason. Was stuck wrestling 189 pound kids that were probably coming down from 195 200 pounds that could make it there. Um, and so we looked at that injury data and we said, oh, that's, that's ugly. Let's, you know, narrow that gap and see if it doesn't reduce injuries. And it did. It, it did. 
Uh, the other thing you need to remember is you can wrestle one weight class above the weight for which you're, you know, that you actually made. So you could have a kid um, who was far below 171 wrestling in the 189-pound class. Well, and the argument came, well, we've got heavyweights that weigh 275 wrestling kids that weigh, and this was another problem, you know, can I qualify for the 189-pound class? Well, I qualify for the 189-pound class, but weighing 172. <laughs> and I can wrestle one class, <laughs> wrestle 189. So um, anyway, um, so I qualify for 189. That means I could wrestle heavyweight or 215. Um, but we didn't see the, the injuries there. Don't know why. But we just didn't. It may be the style that heavyweights wrestle, not as quick or whatever. But anyway, we didn't see the injuries. That was a tremendous help to us in, in establishing those weight classes, taking a look at that. Now, it didn't fit where kids naturally were. And that created some backlash, particularly among smaller schools. But uh, it was based on data. It, it wasn't based on a feeling of, well, that's where it ought to be because that's where my kids are this year um, type of thing. So anyway, those proposals all come to the, to the rules committee who hears all of these reports from outside groups um, on where the sport is headed, what needs they're seeing, um, what feedback they've got from their organizations, that type of thing. And then they go through the rules proposals. Every rules proposal is debated if at least one member of the committee wants it debated. Okay. In addition to the section representatives, there's also a representative from the Coaches Association, the National Coaches Association, and from the National Officials Association. So you've got those section reps, those uh, coaches and officials um, reps, um, as well as the chairman. So uh, 11 members of that committee uh, total, eight sections, coaches and officials, and then the chair. So... Um, then they go through and they debate them uh, and go back and forth on those rules proposals. Often there are a number of rules proposals that effectively do the same thing. They're just worded a little bit differently. Um, from the time, one, yeah, from go ahead. the time a rule clears that federation, so your national group has had a meeting on that rule, how long until it's in place? Okay. Good question. I'll get right to that in just a second. You know, first of all, talking on the voting part, um, it has to pass by a majority of the 11. So if somebody abstains, that abstention goes with the side that prevails or, or whatever, but um, it's got to have a majority in order to pass. So if one of the members wasn't there and you only had 10 people, if it was five to five, it would fail. Um, those are debated. If those are passed, and this is the, the issue there too, very few amendments are allowed because the rules proposal as it was written is what was surveyed. And that was the input that those members of that committee got. And that was, in all honesty, that was incredibly frustrating because there were a few obvious tweaks that needed to be made in a number of rules proposals um, that would really help it out that in many instances you could not make because you hadn't got the input on that particular tweak or that change in that rule proposal. So, so, so you could go back to the person that wrote the rule and say, Hey, we need to fix the wording, but because it didn't go out to the surveyed group and pass that test, you couldn't get it through, even though it was the right rule to pass. Yeah. In, in many instances. Yeah. 
that, that, that was extremely frustrating for me, particularly. I mean, I, I've worked with Congress where you could amend anything, anyway, anytime, anyhow. And, and that's what you, you worked through and did. And, and, that's, and then coming into that type of a situation where, you know, and really what they're doing is they're trying to remain true to the membership, you know, and get their input, make sure they've got that input. But it meant that you were waiting for a whole other year before you could implement something that everybody was in favor of doing <laughs> pretty much. Tough. So that, that was a big one. And there were a number of rules, quite honestly, that were good rules that were favored by the committee that didn't pass because there was some kind of a problem with them. In ter- and, and it was usually, uh, how are we going to adjudicate the rule? How are we going to actually implement it? How is this going to be officiated? Um, have we created a problem for officials in actually overseeing it? Have we, you know, or, you know, even though the fix was obvious, you couldn't do it that time because that wasn't part of the survey. Once it passes that group, um, and quite honestly, there's usually 60, 70 rules proposals, uh, rules change proposals in a year. Um, of that 60 or 70, you'll generally get maybe five to 10 that will pass if at most. That, that would be a huge year if you had 10. Uh, mo- some years I was there, there were three um, or two even. Would you, be, uh, you're saying 60 to 70 that get past the association, the association sends them onto the committee. Yes. And then the committee will approve of those 60 or 70, usually less than 10. Now you laughed a little bit about uh, the shoelace rule. Okay. Yeah. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that and, or if share with us the history of it. Well, <laughs> I, I laugh because I was probably the greatest defender ever when I wrestled. <laughs> I never tied my shoelaces tight because if I needed a break, I wanted to have one somewhere during the match. And, <laughs> and, and so there was rarely a match went by that uh, Mike wasn't stopping it because Bart Thompson had to tie his shoelaces. Um, anyway, um, and, and that's where the shoelace rule came from. We're, people abusing it and, you know, constantly having to tie shoelaces, that type of thing. And so we got the, you know, the shoelaces either need to be enclosed or they need taped. Okay. Secure. And then people, and then people were uh, upset. Well, if I double knot them, what's the difference? You know, why do I have to tape them? And, you know, I, I just, you know, I went back, I took a shower, I took my shoes off. I forgot when I came back to put tape around them. Now you're going to dock me a point. That's not fair. Um, you know, because I just forgot, and I double knot them, they're not going to come undone. And so then the idea came well, hey, if they let, let's get rid of all of that crap because all it is is a headache. Uh, the last thing an official wants to do is start a match with everybody mad at them because they dinged a kid for shoelaces not being secure. Okay. And I feel for an official that way. The last thing you want to do is start a match on a bad note. And um, anyway, so. You know, and the whole point was, hey, if they come undone, let's just, so, hey, if they come undone, let's just ding them for stalling. It's what they're doing. So let's just make that an automatic stall if their shoelaces come undone. Well, then the debate came up, well, what does undone mean? <laughs> That's what I want. I want that clarification. <laughs> okay. What does undone mean? What well, does that mean? Untied? Okay. Well, if they come untied, does that just mean that the loops come untied, but you still have the first knot? They're not untied. I still got the first knot in there. <laughs> so, you know, 
right from the beginning, there's a definition problem. Secondly, okay, if you show up and you don't have them take, because they didn't delete the rule about having them secure in an appropriate fashion. I think that was the exact language. Okay. Shoelaces got to be secured in an appropriate fashion. And I think even in parentheses that they said it could be a double knot. Okay. Um, well, if they came undone, obviously they weren't secured in an appropriate fashion. So do we then penalize the kid with a penalty for not having the shoelaces secured in an appropriate fashion and hit them with a stall call? Because really they'd be guilty of both. That was never the intention of the committee in doing it. Um, and, and, and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I was not on the committee when that was done. I, I inherited the problem when I became the chair of the committee. And so then we just went to it and said, okay, let's get rid of all that extra language. Just say, hey, if the shoelaces come untied or undone, it's a stall, and that's it. Well, I'll bet we had, oh, probably 25 different proposals to do that, one of which was my own, okay? And... Uh, one of those got passed, and then when it went back, we still had the huge debate over what does undone or untied. Um, so, and I don't know if that debate continues to this day or not. But so is the intention of if the official feels like the shoelace has come untied, then we hit him with stalling and make him tie it? Yeah. Okay. Now, I haven't I understand something. I've been retired for two years now, so there have been rules changes, and this has been a hot topic for, yeah. for a long time. It seems ridiculous and stupid, but the bottom line is, is it comes out of wrestlers abusing the rule, and I was one of them. I'll admit that. And it needed to be addressed, and it seems like it would be incredibly simple just to say, hey, if your shoelaces come undone during a match, it's an automatic stall call. I think what's highlighted here is is the complexity of how difficult it is to write. Like the intention's good, right? Yes. We, we don't want wrestlers to stall. Use this as a means of stalling, and like that's the intention, and we want to write the rule. But the complexity. Let me ask you this, Bart. Do you feel like the confusion here sometimes comes from officials? Yes, no question. Why? Much why more is so, that? Much more so than coaches and uh, wrestlers. Are, are the no, officials that's at the high school level? And yes. you know, I talked yesterday about how, how smart college wrestlers are yeah. in terms of rules. They get into it at that level, not well, not quite as much at the high school level. But it's you can certain. you can game the rule. Yeah, yes. yeah. Separate conversation. Um, so as officials, we we kind of bear the responsibility of interpretation a little bit because it has to be applied. Absolutely. And and, and the difficulty is is, I mean our we all want fair play to dictate the outcome. None of us here. Here's the, the one driver that I have constantly with officials is it's like wrestling should determine the outcome of every match. Yeah. Not technicalities of the rule. And I believe that the administration, the Federation agrees with that theory. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately it's experiences with officials where they have a hard time interpreting what is meant or intended versus what's written. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so let me jump into one other one, and this is a hard one because the boundary rule. I mean, you were on the committee when we changed the boundaries and whatnot. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And, and I'm going to say right off the bat here, Don, that was not a rules change, which I favor, but okay. I was in the minority. Yeah. Um, it, the, the desire there was from members of the committee and from coaches across the country, quite honestly, and from officials across the country, especially those who did both college and high school, um, to make the high school rule more like the college rule. And uh, the college rule had been proposed every year for ad nauseum, okay? Um, from like the first year that the college rule was implemented, where if there is a supporting point inbounds of either wrestler, they're still inbounds. That's incredibly easy to officiate. It's as boring as heck to watch, but it's incredibly easy to officiate, okay? From the day that was implemented at college level, there have been proposals to implement it at high school level. The biggest concern at the high school level is, number one, the facilities in which high schools wrestle, particularly tournaments. And high schools are trying to squeeze as many mats as they possibly can into small gyms so that they're not there forever, okay? Because kids can't miss class and, you know, want less travel time and all of that kind of stuff. That, that's not an issue in college. If you're wrestling in a tournament in college, you only wrestle in 10 weight classes. Um, you usually don't have a huge, and you're usually in a huge arena, which is not the case in high school. So, um, and year after year after year after year after year, because Bob Colgate, who was at that time the, the representative, um, he helps to run the NCAA tournament. Um, and, and he understands that, and he also was a high school official. And he understands, you know, the gyms in which these competitions take place. And he said, you put kids that far out of bounds in a high school gym, they're going to have a kid in the bleachers, literally, and they're still in bounds. And you're going to have a coach go absolutely crazy because an official stops it, even though a kid has got hold of a bleacher seat. Okay? Even though that's not the rule. <laughs> You're going to have people going absolutely crazy because, you know, that's the situation. I still have a chance to pull him in and score. Um, and so it went down to defeat both in the committee, and it was passed by the committee several times and then vetoed by the uh, uh, the next committee. I can't remember the name of it. Rules Review Committee um, with input from the uh, Sports Medicine Committee um, because of health and safety. So uh, once a, a rule passes the Wrestling Rules Committee, then it goes to the Rules Review Committee, which is made up of all of the NFHS rules representatives that are looking at it. And they're looking at it for things like fairness, balance between offense and defense. Um, does it promote um, what high school sports and athletics are all about? Um, health and safety, that's usually the biggest one uh, that they're looking at it for, that type of thing. Um, but it failed in, in all of those. So what we got was this new rule. Well, okay, if two points are inbounds um, of either wrestler, then you're still inbound. whatever the current rule is. Um, I like the old rule, quite honestly. Um, you got to have a supporting part of both wrestlers inbounds. That, in other words, both wrestlers have got to be inbounds. The change was to say, okay, if you've got two points inbounds, you're inbounds. So, so Bart, do you like that because it can be administrated in a more black and white? It can be officiated and understood in a more black and white fashion. I, to me, it doesn't seem like it's any more black and white because you're still trying to determine supporting points. 
You're just looking at who those points belong to differently. The challenge with the way the rule's written now is in terms of proximity on the mat, wrestlers could be on their back in a certain position, and the second that they turn over to their belly, they're out of bounds. Yes. Nothing changed other than they went from their back to their belly, yeah. and because the way that the, it's defined. And so there's it's confusing for fans and coaches, and I'll be honest with you, it's confusing for officials because it's an if-then. It's like mm-hmm. if they're in this situation – they're inbounds, but yep. well, as soon as they change that situation, proximity hasn't changed. Supporting points really haven't changed, but well, they do. situation. The supporting points actually do change because when you go from your back to your belly, the supporting points were your shoulders. Yeah. And nothing else was considered. It's so, just the shoulders and only that. So when you roll over to your belly now, the shoulders are no longer the supporting points. Right. But that, that's what makes you out, inbounds out of bounds. And I, I, I think that's – hard for coaches to understand, especially fans, because the fans are like, wait, what changed? You know, and we know what changed, but for somebody that doesn't understand the sport, they're like, huh? Well, and, and one of the, I I believe unintended consequences of the rule change about being able to get a fall or near fall points when the shoulders were out of bounds. Okay. Is um, officials at that time, all they had to look at were shoulders. That's all you had to look at because if they went out of bounds, you didn't have to worry about a fall. You didn't have to worry about a, a near fall count. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because as long as one of those shoulders was out of bounds, those couldn't, those couldn't happen. And so now you could look at the rest of the situation, to determine whether they were in bounds or out of bounds. Now I feel for officials because you've got to look both at the shoulders to see if there's a fall or a near fall count and the other supporting points to see if they're in bounds. Yeah. And how you're supposed to look at both of those, I still haven't figured out. <laughs> so I, I understand, like, so the motive is is great here, right? You know, mm-hmm. if somebody proposes the, the boundary line rule because they want more surface area for wrestling to dictate the outcome of a match. Yes. Um, and in the effort to do so, we made it more difficult to be administrated in a black and white manner. I, I agree with that. It definitely requires officials to be in better position at all times. Yeah, proximity is key. If you're too close, you can't see both, right? No, you can't. Yeah. And, and, and that's a training point that, you know, was lost on the coaches that supported that. Um, see, coaches wanted the ability to be able to pin a kid at the edge of the mat. That makes total sense. That's wrestling determining the outcome. Exactly. And they felt like, you know, oh, well, that kid slides his shoulder out of bounds. And, you know, it's too easy to get out of bounds. You know, we're giving that kid an easy out. And we don't want that in wrestling. And, and nobody does. Um, but in changing the rule now, you've made it almost impossible to officiate it. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how an official gets far enough away to see both well enough to determine, you know, whether there is a fall, number one. And if the leg on the other side is inbounds or out of it. And is it a supporting point? Because is the kid on his toe or is that leg up in the air? I'll, I'll be honest with you. In those circumstances, I'm never more grateful to have a second official on the mat. Yeah. Th- there's almost no way to officiate without. Yeah. Judgment so, call. In, yeah. In, in duels where you don't have a second official, it becomes. It's tough. Oh, well, yeah. and that's that's a training feature for us. Just on that note is, you know, we ask every JV official to stick around and help us. One is it's an experience for them, but man, it's a critical, it's a critical piece in those situations to have those second set of eyes. 
Yeah. Craziest, craziest rule that came before you. Oh, I, I don't remember the crazy ones too much because they usually get dismissed out of hand. There's not a single member of the committee who wants to debate. So. <laughs> Maybe something um, that made sense, but at the same time, it was like, what? I don't know. Nothing like that. Um, well, I, I mean, the push out rule shows up, you know, in and out. That, that's a, that would be a huge change. Um, it would certainly force wrestling into the middle. Um, it, would school- wrestling become sumo? Mm. Maybe. Um, I, I don't know. And that's it, come to you. You've actually had oh, that yeah. come to the committee. Yeah. That one never does well on surveys. Yeah. Bart, if there was one thing that you could change from a rules, you have the magic wand. You can, you can change whatever. What, what would it be? Um, that a reversal would be worth three points. Then you don't have to determine if there's been an escape before a takedown. I like that. You end up in exactly the same position. Why shouldn't you score the same number of points? Oh, I like that. Um, now that's coming from a guy who couldn't take down his own shadow. <laughs> so you would not <laughs> be in favor You of reflected a... your coach. You struggle a little bit on your feet too. So <laughs> that might be why you're thinking. <laughs> Wait, uh, so you're well, saying the reversal worth three, takedown still yeah. just worth two. Yeah, takedown still worth two. Reversal's worth three because if you escape and take the guy down, you've earned three points and you're in exactly the same situation position. So so to that note, don't you think it would be greater risk to take somebody down? Shouldn't that be worth three points? Well, now then a reversal should be worth four then because you got an escape and a t- <laughs> uh, I so, like it. So escape <clears throat> worth four. No escape. I mean, worth sorry, one. takedown worth four. Reversal three. Well, anytime you make like a takedown worth more than a reverse or worth more than a reversal or less than a reversal, you've got a problem. Um, yeah, because it's difficult to get out from underneath, right? I mean, that's what you're saying. That's a yeah. that's a difficult point like spot to score from. Well, and, and if you're scoring all the way, if you're going from being in the control of your opponent to gaining control over your opponent, ooh, yeah, you've done an escape and a takedown essentially even though it may have all been in one move um why shouldn't it score the same as an escape and a take you know what philosophically they talk about bringing more interest from fans to you know adding more scoring situations in wrestling like this could really be one of them well and this wouldn't this wouldn't matter now if all of a sudden there's was there an escape? Were they were they separated? Did he have a chance to defend himself? And now he's taken right down. It wouldn't matter. All of that stuff. It's three yeah. points, no matter what. It's just three. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Has what, that, what are your has that? What are your thoughts, uh, Bard, on a four point near fall? Um, I like it. Um, the the one drawback of it, and, and I, I mean, I do, I like it, but. Um, the drawback of it is uh, you got two kids that are pretty evenly matched. One kid just happens to catch the other one. Um, I mean, even now, if you score a near fall on a kid that you're pretty evenly matched, you're probably going to win the match. It, it's pretty much over at that point. 
um, doing that just in, increases that potential. But um, I like the idea of if you meet near fall criteria beyond reaction time, rather than having to get a two count, that's a that's a two. Um, if you get a three count, that's three, and then if you get the five count, then it's four. I, I don't mind that, but or however, I don't know how what the actual proposal is. That's the one that I've seen that I've kind of been intrigued by. That that has been proposed before. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, we we've seen that a couple times. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like hey, Bart, it. Let me let me just it's say pretty radical change. I think that's why it doesn't happen. Agreed. As an official, Bart, I think you did a good job, and thank you your service in that capacity i know in my uh towards the end of my career i got to the point where i was comfortable with the rules and i was comfortable with what i understood the wrestling to be and i just kind of sat back and judged and made sure that i didn't take control of the match yeah. and that i let the wrestling determine the outcome and it will and the rules are set up in that way and i yeah. really appreciate that just just let them wrestle keep it fair stay out of the way yeah if there's one thing i learned really in my very first year on the committee wrestling's actually in pretty darn good shape yeah the, the fact that we're arguing about things like shoelaces <laughs> um and uh, um, girls' uniforms, and you know, those are the kinds of things that are taking up you know huge amounts of time. That's on the periphery. Um, whether we do or don't change the shoelace rule, in all honesty, isn't going to make that much difference. It really isn't. I know officials want to step on the mat and be comfortable. You know, with that, but how many shoelace calls have you had in your entire career, Mike? Half a dozen. Few. Not very many. Yeah, it, it just does not happen that much. It really just does not happen. Um, I mean, it used to be that if a kid showed up without them tied, it was, uh, you know, that was a exactly. misconduct warning to the coach. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah. I, I, we keep, you know, battling that one back and forth and everything else. But in all honesty, it really doesn't matter that much. And, and those are the things that, that means we're in pretty darn good shape. There, there doesn't have to be a whole lot there. The, the issues with wrestling are, I, I, as I see it, the biggest issues with wrestling is how do we get kids to wrestle in the middle of the mat? Uh, so we're not going out of bounds quite as much. And uh, I've been convinced over the years that hey, the college rule is not the answer because that encourages wrestling on the edge. Um, yeah. that encourages it to be there. Um, you know, we've either got to, we either got to have a stick or a carrot. <laughs> there, there's either got to be a penalty for wrestling over there, whatever it is, whether it's a step out rule, whether it's a, you know, automatic stall call, if you touch the, you know, which is essentially a step out rule, it's just not as big a penalty. Um, or we've got to have, you know, that's the stick or we've got to have an incentive. If I score, a takedown in the 10 foot circle, it's three. If I score a takedown over on the edge, it's one. You know, if, if any part of a wrestler is out of bounds, when I finish the takedown, it's only a one point take. 
Now that's completely out of the box and I'm not advocating for it, but we need either an incentive or a disincentive um, as far as edge of the mat goes. Bart, over the years, um, it seems that there's a, a little bit of a push to make stalling more of a criteria based um, so that it's more easily understood between coaches. Um, so that's more easily understood. Uh, it, is there, as a coach and as someone who sat on the, the rules uh, committee, is there something that officials can do to help make that better? Don, stalling is and will be regardless of how many criteria you place on it. I mean, I used to watch uh, NCAA matches, and the referee was constantly counting because they used to have all kinds of criteria that if you hold this position for however many seconds, then it's called, you know, and I mean, they were worse than basketball officials. You know, you watch basketball officials counting a 10 seconds in the backcourt, you know, as they come in. wrestling officials were counting everything. You know, he's in a headlock for how many seconds? He's got an arm tie for how many seconds? So, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, the, obviously the attempt there is to make it less a judgment call. But the bottom line is it still was a judgment call. Um, were they in that position? And, and as a judgment call, it becomes like pass interference in football. It's always a big call. It, it, it can make a difference in a match. Um, but it's totally to the judgment of an official. Um, one of the very best, one of the officials that I respected as much as anybody ever that I thought did the best. If I had my choice of three officials to do a state championship, Matt, he was definitely on my list every time. Um, you know, we're in a match and, uh, actually it was one of Ben Kerr's matches, um, at state. And uh, it was an early round match. So, you know, it was a high seed against a low seed. And Ben was kicking the crud out of this kid. Finally, this kid just, you know, laid down flat, hit his arms, you know, just laid flat and wasn't going to move. You know, Ben eventually got right off of him. And, you know, like this. And the kid just laid there, didn't move. And, and I got a little excited. I said, that's the very definition of stalling, isn't it? And this is an, an excellent official. Like I said, he's. You know, one of the people I would rank very much at the top. At the end of the match, well, hey, you know, why can't we get a stock call? Because, you know, at that point, we were in a close team fight, and it was going to make a difference whether we got a technical fall or even a major decision at that point. So team points were at stake. I said, how is that not stalling? And you know what his response was? Well, he's just trying not to get pinned. I said, that's a definition of stalling. Yeah. And he kind of looked at me, you know, if he said, well, your kid just had him overpowered and he knew he couldn't say that because Ben got completely off of him uh, and he wouldn't come up. Um, but the bottom line is, is you get uh, pass interference calls in football. You get block charge calls in basketball. You get stall calls in wrestling. You get ball strike calls in baseball based on what the umpire had for breakfast that morning. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> it's what mood are they in that day uh, in, in many, many instances. Um, Jerry Pace, I, I disagree with how he called Stalin. I'll, tell, I'll say that right off the bat. He called it way too quick, and mm -hmm. he was very much um, 
prejudice against the top man. Okay. I don't know that I ever saw him call stalling on a bottom guy ever, but, it's, but I'll tell you what, I can't count the number of times I elbowed my assistant coach in the corner and said, there's going to be a stall call right now. And within two seconds, there'd be a whistle. Yeah. I knew when it was coming. I, I, he was incredibly consistent, even though I didn't agree with how he called it. He was incredibly consistent. I knew exactly what he was doing. So anytime it's a judgment call, consistency is it. Well, you know, and Rick Dittman was exactly the opposite, in all honesty. You couldn't get a, a stall call out of Rick. But he was incredibly consistent. It was the same all the time, no matter what. Um, they, they were very consistent. And so I didn't mind having those officials because I knew what to count on as a coach. Um, you, you knew how to coach to that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But – you know, stalling is a difficult thing because no matter what you do to it, it's going to be a judgment call. Well, somebody's not going to be happy. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the block charge in basketball. You know, you call it one way, one side of the stands are going to scream at you. You call it the other, the other side are going to scream at you. Um, yeah. And you're out there and people are screaming, that's stalling, that's stalling, that's stalling. And as soon as you make the call, then everybody else screams at you. Yeah. That's my favorite statement to say to a ref when I'm taking his place on the mat. I walk out and I say, hey. Unlike half this crowd, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've said that to me. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> but anyway, stalling is, right. it's just one of those issues that we're going to have to do because it is judgment. When, no matter how many criteria you put to it, it's still bottom line, it's judgment. Thanks for coaching good kids. Thanks for coaching tough kids. And thanks for being a gentleman in the sport. Yeah. Well, well thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, I mean, I wasn't always a gentleman, but. <laughs> hey, Bart, I, I mean, it be. was well known that if Bart Thompson took you to the table, you better listen. That was well known amongst every official. And it didn't happen often, but, man, you better be prepared when it, it happened. I love that, actually, as a wrestler. I knew that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the Ripplingers talked about it, Mike, particularly in your, you know, podcast that they did there's no sense arguing with an official over something that's really not going to matter. Um, you, you want to hold those for the the next one. And, and there were times when you know you do play that strategically. I'll be honest with you. Uh, when you feel like an official has not made a correct call where you do get after them because you want to get the next one, you know, you're not going to get that one. Yeah. But, but you know, there's some doubt in that official's mind and you're pretty convinced that, an error was made, whether it's judgment or not, you're going to let them know about it. Um, because most good officials, they're cognizant of that and they learn. I mean, I, we're, I know we're going back to the coaching aspect of things, but were there times when you specifically said, I'm going, going to the table, I'm going to get a coach misconduct? Um, no, I never did say I'm going to go get a coach misconduct. Um, there were times I did get after people and, you know, I love Gene Cow, and I respect Gene as much as anybody in the entire sport. Um, Gene would come over in our room over the holidays every now and again, us with kids and stuff like that. And, um, and, and Gene as an official was fantastic. Yeah. Well, he was officiating, uh, Adam Kerr's semifinal match at state 
And late in the match, we were down by one and uh, kids shot in on us just to hold on, you know, to, well, you know, essentially stall out the match, um, being ahead by one. And we got around on it and got the kid broken clear flat on the mat, had a cross face, came clear around behind and put the leg behind him. But the kid still had Adam by the calf, locked around his calf. But Adam is clear around behind. It's a picture in the rule book. And uh, Gene didn't give us the takedown. And I, I don't know if you guys noticed, but Gene didn't take guff from anybody. <laughs> he was as quick to, to, to nail coaches as, as anybody in the state. And grandmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this ought to be a good story. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got after Gene as hard as I've ever gotten after an official on that one. He says, Bart, in my judgment, he didn't have control. I said, Gene, it's not up to your judgment. That's why there's a picture in the rules book. I said, that's not a judgment call. I said, there's a picture in the rule book that shows that situation and says it's a takedown. And, and I mean, I, I'm not doing this quietly because <laughs> I was pretty upset at that point. And Gene said, no, I just didn't feel like he had control yet. I, he, I don't, you know. And we sat there for, I'll bet, four or five minutes, kind of going back, and, and Gene took it from me. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, I was surprised I didn't get hit. Um, but by not going after him on over every nitpicky thing, I think Gene was willing to listen to my point of view at least. And I didn't go to the table on that one. I got <laughs> right, right where it occurred, and, and uh, Gene was very nice to me on that occasion, <laughs> even though I wasn't being very nice to him. I appreciated that tremendously. But I'll tell you what, on, on control at the edge of the mat stuff, from that point on, Gene always looked at stuff very carefully. And I remember there was one, like three years later, where it was a similar situation. We came around behind, hooked it. He signaled the two, whistled him out of bounds. He looked over at me and winked. <laughs> I love that story because I'll be honest with you in the moments of sometimes the greatest conflict, I've learned the most as an official from a coach. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah. No, and I, you know, and I'm not saying I'm right. And, and I understand where Gene was coming from because it was still kind of a precarious situation. If it had been in the middle of the mat, it's one where an official is going to let it go for a minute to see if they really stay in that position. Um, you know, it wasn't going to happen on the edge right there because they were going out of bounds. But so I can understand where he was coming from. But it, it, good interaction. You know, it's one of those coach, you know, where that one was worth getting into it because I felt like we had a justification and uh, it, it wasn't nitpicky, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, I, it's one of the things that we spend a tremendous amount of time on as, as a co or officials association is, is um, you know, we're developing people just like coaches develop yeah. athletes. And there's a very human element to this sport that we're not perfect. I mean, and, and um, taking ownership for specific, you either find out something you didn't know because a coach has a different lens and it's like a valuable, valuable uh you know, learning opportunity. But the one thing about officials is they don't want to be wrong. No. And, and good for them. <laughs> yeah. But when it happens, as, it's as a, a coach, I don't experience. want them to be wrong either. 
Right. As long well, as we he, don't have the ego that when we are wrong, yes. we admit it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. You never, you want to, you want to make the correct call. Yeah. You don't want it. Absolutely. And, and, and I'll be honest with you. I respect those of you in the officiating community who work your tails off to be better and to be good at your craft. Cause it's a, it's a craft. It, it's an artisan craft. I mean, you know, I go to the hobby store and I can buy a paint by number Mona Lisa and I can fill in all the colors just exactly right. When I put it on the wall, it doesn't look anything like what's hanging in the loop. Okay. <laughs> and officiating is an art as much as painting. Yes. Yeah, there are some people who will get a hundred percent on every test, every rules test anywhere. They'll get all the right answers in the rules meetings and everything else. And they can't officiate to save their lives. Those okay. guys keep Don up at night. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There is an art to it. But there's also the reason that Leonardo da Vinci could paint the Mona Lisa well he did is because he painted probably 5,000 of them before that. Right. He worked his butt off to get to that point. And I respect officials who do that because I think often officials lose sight of the fact that a coach and that kid have spent three, four hours a day every single day for several months to get to that match. There's a and lot of emotion going to step out there. Who's read the book once and taken the test and they're going to do it. We, we appreciate that officials put, you know, the time and effort into their craft that the, that the wrestlers and coaches are putting into theirs as well. I, you know, it's one of the things I tell officials that I said, assume goodwill, you know, and it's hard in an emotional environment when a coach is yelling at you, but it's like, Hey, assume goodwill here, you know, consider, and it's, it's empathy. Like, Hey, that coach is, he's invested and it's hard. I mean, there's a human response to it, but if you consider goodwill on that approach, you end up coming out a better with a better outcome. We had a guy years ago who moved into Utah. He was here a couple of years and moved out and he was the epitome of doing that wrong. And he used to keep a rule book in his back pocket. And if you ever looked at him sideways, it came out like a gun. Yeah. And he started wheeling through it to prove he was right when he wasn't. Yeah. And it was it was sad that he as long as he learned he from it. Tell him anything. It was crazy. Don, did you did you know who that was? I I do. I'm not going there. All right. So I've got a quick question then. And obviously this is changing subject from our previous two subjects. But Bart, how then do we get more people to come and officiate? People like say, you know, you've you've had a lot of guys go through your viewmont, you know, the Viewmont program when you were coaching them. How do we get them to come and give back to that that sport to which and, and this could be any sport, right? But the sport well, that which they yeah. they got such a great opportunity to compete in. Well of all the wrestlers I've coached, I've probably had 10, 15 actually officiate after they got done wrestling. Don's the only one who's really stuck. <laughs> um, and a, a big part of that is how they get treated. Um, and we've got to come up with some better way of bringing people up to the ranks because what happens is, is you know, a coach will work hard, recruit his kids, to get them to officiate, 
you know, kids that do a good job of, you know, officiating challenge matches in the room and stuff like that and see kids and you encourage them to, to get into it. Um, and they come out and they do it and they start out obviously at the JV sophomore level. And, uh, often at the JV sophomore level, the coaches are dads or, you know, some paraprofessional, somebody who's not an educator, um, somebody who doesn't understand the purpose of high school athletics. Um, they're there to win and they think they can make a name for themselves if their JV kids do really well. And so every move that brand new official makes, who's as raw as the kids on the mat, they're getting lit up over. Um, why do I spend two hours to earn 30 bucks to just get my tail chewed? And drive halfway across the valley to do it? Or, you know, in the middle of a snowstorm, what am I thinking? Um, or I go spend all day Saturday at a JV tournament and just get lit up by every coach in the building. And I've got mommies coming out of the stands saying they're going to wait for me in the parking lot. Um, and, and I make $60, $80 for that day. Um, why am I going to do that? Um, there are coaches who understand that that official is learning as well. And they will take an official to the side and talk to them in a call there and try to help them out and, and do that kind of stuff. Um, and there are others who just don't. And it, it, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Somehow we've got to convince coaches and programs that officials have got to learn somewhere. That's really well said. I'm still sticking by my – I have a way that I think might fix it a little bit. And and I think if the UHSAA would, if there's ever a fan or something that is kicked out or removed from an event, in order for them to ever attend a high school event again, they have to step on the field of play and officiate in some aspect. That's my thing. And it sounds like it would really work well. But now you're going to put the guy in the stands who doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, <laughs> who's willing to scream at an official. Now you're going to put him out there on the mat with the power to control that match. What's he going to do to a coach? I had a guy say to me as we walked out of a gym one time, well, how do you think you did? And I thought he was setting me up. So I said, I think I wrapped as good as they wrestled. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> but like, like I said, good officials are artists. They are. And, and did, as good 30, artists, they, they've got that talent, but they're willing to put in the time and effort to work at it to really make it a, a craft and, and, and something beyond just that talent. It's beyond the rule book. I mean, it's what we talk about is emotional intelligence and engaging with human beings. I mean, it's, it's something that sometimes you can't teach a kid when he walks in the room to be mean, just like there's certain officials that developing emotional intelligence is a process that some are capable of and some are. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, it's it, be, because we can identify it, we can teach it, we can train it. And, and we do. And it's, that is probably the most difficult thing we are faced with in training officials. Mm-hmm. So I, I, ran, I ran for 33 years. And if it weren't for a condition in my eyes, I'd still be doing it, but I don't want to be out there if I can't see. Well, Mike, there are a number of uh, fans who believe that most fish can't see anyway. So that would be you know what? Maybe I got an advantage. <laughs> Sounds like you qualify to be a ref. <laughs> so, hey. and, and in all honesty, since the pandemic, um, and I don't know if you're seeing it with wrestling officials on or not, but I know overall, uh, working with the activities associations, the shortage of officials has been exacerbated. You know, our challenge is not shortages. It's we have more demand with girls wrestling. So we've essentially doubled duels. We've doubled tournaments and we need double the officials. Yeah. And like this is not this is not a mystery. One of the things that I've inherited from a really good group of men is a sense of community through brotherhood. And the better organizations can understand that idea that it's not just officiating. It's, it's, Hey, it's making that personal connection and that phone call. When people feel like they belong, they'll stay, they'll endure pains when they have a sense of belonging. And it's no different than what we learned in wrestling rooms, but in today's society and COVID like separated us from humans and that interaction and that sense of belonging that it's lost. And the greatest thing we offer to young officials when they step into a program, like our, the UWOA specifically, is a sense of belonging. We have somebody, they're assigned somebody, a mentor that's a veteran. Hey, connect with this guy. Make him feel like at home. Brayden Humphrey said it best. I mean, he wrestled at UVU, came back, and I caught him in Layton's room wrestling one afternoon. I'm like, hey, you need to sign up. Well, he goes home and he talks to his dad, and his dad goes, why on earth would you ever do that? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. He goes, well, I want to, I want to contribute. So he comes out and like halfway through January, he comes over to me, he goes, man, if I would have known it was this fun, I would have come a long time ago. He wasn't referring to wrestling. He was referring to our community. We, and we, Hey, we need more officials, not because we're short. There's a bigger demand. Mm. Good. I'm glad because that was not my situation in that. Well, we, we were I, short and I'm we, telling had, you, we were bringing the girls on at the same time. So you're built like just to be a better human being and to like put your arm around somebody and to make them feel connected. They're going to stay. I tell people statistically, when you recruit 20 officials, you're only going to retain four. 80% will drop out. And it, it look, it's way, there's way too much effort. We just got to retain more, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's our thing. And, and anyway, totally separate subject. This is how sad my life is. Wrestling officials were a bunch of guys my wife approved of me hanging out with. <laughs> <laughs> now, the rules of wrestling, like all sports, have evolved over time to try to make the sport more enjoyable to watch, better overall. There's a lot of work that goes into rule changes. Changing a rule leads to other changes in the sport, and every year there are lots of proposals sent to committee. That time is coming up soon. So if you have something that you have been working on that will better the sport, I, along with all the other avid wrestling fans, would love to see it. Don't hang on to it. Send it in. I'm Mark Winterton, and thanks for listening to this episode of Takedowns and Takeaways.